Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and if you enjoy this show, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, where you will receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com to subscribe. All content and episodes are intended for informational entertainment purposes and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Christina Nunez, co-founder and general partner of True Beauty Ventures. Some of their investments include Maud, Crown Affair, and K18. Today's episode focuses on how to invest and build a beauty and personal care brand. Without further ado, here's Christina. Christina, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great on this hot summer Miami day. <laughs> That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Uh, thanks again. I know that we this has been a long time coming. We had a couple of cancellations on my end. So I uh, really appreciate you bearing with me and my schedule. Wanted to get started on, why did you start a fund solely focused on beauty and personal care? What was the opportunity you saw? It's such a great question because we get asked this all the time. And there's a couple of reasons One is because of a massive white space opportunity that my co-founder and I identified early on where there were very few institutional investors that were focused on not only beauty and wellness as a specialization, but early stage investing in this sector. There were plenty of angels to go around and maybe some early stage VCs that dabbled in beauty, but there really wasn't anyone focused exclusively on the sector and certainly not someone with a ton of experience, either institutional investing or operating and with experience in beauty. So quite honestly, it was a wide open playing field for us to come in and really make an impact. And our backgrounds are investing in beauty, operating in beauty, spending years exclusively looking at this space. So we knew firsthand that the opportunity existed. What we didn't know is how quickly we'd be able to launch this and be successful at deploying capital and the appetite that there was for what we had to offer to to this industry. So that was actually really surprising, but also exciting for us. So you saw a lot of appetite then from potential LPs or got a lot of traction from LPs to actually raise because there was some um, alignment or agreement there that there was really an opportunity um, with an early stage uh, beauty personal care. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of uh, demand from on the founder side because honestly, they had very few places to turn when they were when they had launched a business and were looking for a million or two million of capital, there were very few places that they could turn to. So the appetite was very, very strong. The demand was very strong from founders. When we were speaking to LPs initially, it was a bit challenging for those that didn't understand at the time the value of sector specialization and the value of having sector specialists and experts investing in this space alone. And so in some cases, some LPs didn't understand it and that was okay. In other cases, those that got it really, really did get it and understood that you need 
sector specialists to really be able to identify what good looks like in this category because there are so many brands that are launched in this space and it is arguably a very saturated space if you don't know what to look for and to be able to really identify the winning brands. And so those LPs jumped on the opportunity and really wanted to get behind my co-founder and I as experts to be able to invest successfully here. Was it also a case as well, as you look back a little bit, maybe beauty and personal care um, at the early stage, um, the investing landscape past maybe 10 years or so, where 10 years ago and beyond, we saw the rise of the online channel, e-commerce. A lot of tech investors got very excited about these types of companies, not just, of course, in beauty and personal care, but across you know, consumer. That has waned a bit over the past few years. Of course, these weren't funds that were beauty and personal care you know, exclusively focused, right? They were more either generalist consumer or just generalist period. But was that also part of the opportunity in that you saw actually a lot of firms leave investing um, in beauty and personal care early? Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that beauty became a segment that consumers would increasingly purchase online, I think that opened the door to a lot of new investors coming into the space. And for sure, investors that maybe were uh, traditionally VC focused on tech, all of a sudden this is a really new, interesting category. And they saw brands like Glossier as an example that really tried to become tech companies themselves. And I do think that opened the door to a lot of investors to participate in the space. But I also think that beauty in and of itself is a category that while online is a great experience and can be a great experience if done if executed correctly by the brand it's still a category that consumers like to shop and experience in store and it's something that we have always fundamentally believed in the importance of omnichannel for beauty brands and the fact that you need to focus on the experience online and offline, how they come together as well, because the ability for a beauty brand to scale exclusively in online is limited after a certain point. You see many beauty brands that have to push into wholesale, even if they intended to be digitally native in and of themselves. And there's so many dynamics at play that um, for why that's the case. Uh, one of them is if you look at the way that the consumer is shopping today, for those that are going in store, they're shopping across price points. They actually want an experience where they could maybe shop high and shop low for beauty. And you're actually seeing this really interesting blurring of distribution channels in retailers right now, whether that's the Sephora partnership with Kohl's or it's the Ulta partnership with Target or Walmart with Space and K, which is a prestige skin uh, beauty retailer, or now CVS is offering prestige beauty in store. It's such an interesting dynamic, but I think what it shows is that the consumer really wants to be able to shop and experiment and play and learn in store. And while online can be a great way to educate, you lose that kind of tangible experience. Uh, when you're only looking at online or, or shopping 
on social platforms. And so yes, the rise of tech, the rise of online for beauty has definitely boosted the category. But as you mentioned, I mean, the return to wholesale is real. And it's something that I think is important for this category and will always be continue, will continue to be important to this category. When you think about retail, because I'm glad you brought up these kind of blurring the lines and retailers partnering with one another, right? It, does that make your job tougher when you're analyzing brands that are in retail to potentially invest in? Because the customer, the actual customer type might be blurred, as you say, or not in a specific category. It might be hard to describe. Is that challenging to you or is it lend itself as an opportunity in that the brand actually can be maybe broader than like a specific, you know, demo? It does make it a bit more challenging. There's a famous quote by Leonard Lauder where he said that you are defined by your distribution. A brand is defined by its distribution. So it used to be that if you are prestige or luxury, you know, you were sold in certain channels of distribution. So if you were luxury, you know, you were sold in department stores um, as an example, and you really stuck to your lane because that defined who you were and you started off in those higher you know, points of distribution before you made your way into you know, others. But I think to your point, I mean, it, it does make it a little bit more challenging because it potentially calls into question who the brand is and who the consumer is when before you could maybe bucket the consumer into really easy demographics um, or psychographics now it might be a little bit harder because the consumer may want to mix and match and they may be comparing a mass brand and holding it up next to a prestige brand and trying to compare ingredient lists and look at the benefits and then compare it to the price. And the consumer is so savvy in this space that you know you, you, you can't pull the wool over the consumer's eyes. They will be checking you know, your reviews, your uh, your website, they'll be in Reddit chats and they're going to be trying to really uncover does what is the value of this brand? What is their value proposition? Do they actually deliver on the promises that they make to consumers? And then kind of compare and contrast across everything that's out there. So it does, it does make it a little bit more challenging, but um, you know, it's also another opportunity to access a consumer. For example, if they're going on a target run and they happen to be in the skincare section and you happen to be in the Ulta shop and shop experience, there's an opportunity for you to access that consumer who may not have gone to a standalone Ulta store because maybe there wasn't an Ulta store, but there was a Target location. So it, it is a great opportunity for brands to access um, more consumers and a way for them to to be able to market to them and merchandise to them in store if given that opportunity. And, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why sometimes that can be challenging because selling in retail is expensive. But then again, online marketing has become increasingly more expensive. So it's, um, it, gives, it gives brands another outlet and another way to access folks. I'd imagine that is somewhat challenging, right? Because if you are, for example, a luxury brand, right? Yes, you do have you know, more accessibility if your brand is in, you know, Target or is featured um, I'm in Ulta and then that's, you know, in a Target store. But at the same time, and so you do have more access, more distribution, 
But at the same time, do you lose maybe that sense of, of luxury in terms of where you're positioned? And so I'd imagine that that could be tricky as you're kind of analyzing you know, brand equity from, from your standpoint. It's tricky and it's also tougher to educate in certain channels because you don't have the merchandising opportunity on shelf to tell the story. And then you may not also have a beauty advisor or any salesperson there to also explain what the brand is, why it's so special, and really why the value proposition is what it is. And if you don't have that opportunity, it can be it can be really hard, especially if a brand is a higher price point brand, because now you have the hurdle of price point to be able to convince consumers of why they're paying for this. What is the efficacy that they are actually going to get from using this product? Why is it differentiated? What is the story behind why it was created? A lot of these luxury brands have really great founding stories or clinical testing and other benefits that they can articulate and if they don't have that opportunity on shelf because of the you know merchandising opportunity then that's a that's also a challenge you're 100% right so we opened this by you stating how saturated beauty and personal care is and it's hard of course when you don't maybe come from the industry and this is the opportunity you're seeing as well since you're vertically focused in terms of you're able to pick the right brands that are going to succeed. What do you look for in a brand? And also, if you are defined by your distribution, does that mean you have to be omni-channel from day one in order for you to be interested or omni-channel period in order for you to be interested? I'll answer that question first because that's that's a quicker one. I do think omni-channel is the best path for a beauty brand, but most definitely you can start online first. In fact, we encourage founders to be super focused in how they launch and to not try to launch in a massive way right out the gate. To start off with your DTC, maybe a few e-commerce partners that are brand building partners for you before you expand into large retail wholesale distribution with an anchor partner, which is what we always encourage. So starting off full, you know, it's very difficult for a brand to launch full all door distribution in a Sephora or an Ulta right out the gate, unless you are perhaps founded by a large celebrity founder as an example, or a big influencer, and that's happening more and more today. But if you're not one of those brands, it is pretty hard to get Sephora or Ulta's buy-in to have such a large push. So definitely online, lower barriers to entry. You could put a website up and start to build out your online following before you launch retail. That's a strategy that we've seen executed uh, many times. Um, but I think when I take a step back and you know I say the industry is very saturated, it is the case, but the reality is there are so many pockets of growth and opportunities to invest in beauty. You just have to be able to have the right framework and the right investment criteria to filter all of that other stuff out. Beauty is large, it's growing, it's highly fragmented, and the large players are losing share to the indies and the indies are growing faster the indies are the ones pushing innovation 
growth. They're building out really great customer bases. They're going after innovation in sustainability and ingredients and all this great stuff. So that's where the fun is. That's where the activity is. And so what we try to do is we spend our time looking at hundreds and hundreds of brands. I think in the last two years since we've launched the fund, we've looked at maybe 950 brands in this space alone. And so trying to figure out what we want to spend time on and what we actually, we say what we filter in, not what we filter out because the bar is so high. When we bring those brands in and we actually spend time talking to founders, going into diligence and I and really trying to figure out if this is something we want to invest in, we look for several factors and they're not going to be groundbreaking because I'm sure a lot of investors look for the same thing in in this category and other categories. But first and foremost, it starts with the brand and the founder. And because there are so many brands in beauty, we look to see how differentiated is this brand? What is the positioning and how does it compare to everything else that's out there, everything else that's on shelf and the founder who's behind them? What is their founding story? Why do they think this needs to exist in the world? and how dedicated and passionate they are about what they do every day. So spending a lot of time, spending time with the founder, identifying what drives them, what their point of differentiation is. And then honestly, we spend so much time just reading and digesting everything about the beauty industry that most of the time, even before any founders reach out to us, we already have them on our radar or we already have the brands on our radar that we think are creating a splash that are doing something different. We also have our ear to the ground um, and speaking to all the merchants at you know every major retailer to also figure out what's on their radar. But once we get past brand and founder, and the second area that we spend a lot of time on is product. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you're selling a product that in some cases really can change people's life. And if they can't live without your product, um, the loyalty and the attachment is amazing in this space. And so really understanding, do they deliver on what they say? What are their ingredients? Are they you know, formulated in a clean way if that's part of their positioning? Or are they focused more on clinical results and what testing has been done? And how can you actually prove that this works? Because you can get everybody to buy a product once, but then to get them to come back and continue to replenish that product means you need to have something that actually delivers on on the product benefits. And then the, uh, another piece we've spent some time already talking about is, is distribution, because it is so important that a brand is focused and narrow on its distribution first. You definitely don't want to bite off more than you can chew. And I can't tell you how many times we see small brands that are so proud of all of the points of distribution that they're in. They're in 2,000 points of distribution, and then their revenue is teeny tiny. And all that means is that you're not really productive in the distribution that you're in, and you may not even be important to the retailers that you're working with. So we like narrow, but more productive distribution. And then on the DTC side, I mean, we look at all the the metrics there. And oftentimes when, since these brands are early, they may not have a lot of proof points in retail yet. So spending time on the data that we get from, from them on DTC in terms of their customer repurchase rate and how many times, not only how many times have they come back to purchase, but how recently have they come back to purchase and looking at AOVs and LTVs and all the major, you know, 
check marks that we have to check on on DTC is is important. And I think all it does is it validates that there is something there, there is some momentum. And then can a brand cross over into retail is the bet that we take if they're not there yet. Um, and we have definitely have our ways of vetting that. And I can go on and on, but I think you know there, it's it's one of those things where there's as much data as we can get from these early stage brands. And there could be a science to it. And we, we've seen lots of pattern recognition. We have a ton of reps in the space to identify what good looks like. But ultimately, it's, it's a gut call, too. It's, it's more art than science. And it's trying to figure out in all of our experience and seeing the playbooks that have been executed in beauty, which are the ones that would work. And can this brand execute one of those? What if you find a brand, it's maybe performing really well online, has great margins, but you actually are not convinced maybe the packaging or the brand identity is working on would work on the retail side. And would that be a risk that you might be willing to kind of take in order to have the brand go through a rebrand if the founder is comfortable doing that? How do you approach that, that scenario? Our backgrounds, my, my co-founder, Rich Gersten, and I, we come from private equity. And so in private equity, you're, you typically invest a little bit later stage and that's part of the value add. You roll up your sleeves and you identify opportunities to fix a company, whether that's rebranding, you know, obviously enhancing management teams, optimizing supply chains. You really you spend a lot of time with these brands, which is why in private equity you typically invest in fewer portfolio comp- fewer portfolio companies. You're also deploying larger checks. What we actually have tried to do here with True Beauty is a bit of a hybrid approach, actually, because we do believe in strong value adds. So we actually have fewer companies because we want to invest more meaningfully from a check size perspective, and we want to spend more time with the brand. So when we look at an opportunity like what you just described, where there's something that's so special, they have an amazing product, a fantastic founder, and perhaps they just need a small tweak. And that could be a bit of a brand refresh or maybe a a move to a new packaging vendor. Again, we have so many resources at our disposal with our network within beauty that that's easy for us to do. Those small lifts we will definitely um, pursue. When it comes to this brand has to be completely reworked, the positioning's off, the value proposition isn't strong, we have to reformulate, all of that is a bit more heavy lifting that you know, there's so many options at our disposal, so many interesting brands out there that it's not something that we will undertake necessarily. We would rather find something that has momentum and just needs a little bit of, you know, tweaking and is a burning ember and it just needs kind of more fuel to be added to the fire. Um, And that's kind of, that's been our strategy is identifying those brands that have those characteristics because ultimately it just is, is a lot of heavy lifting to quote unquote, turn a brand around. So that's not, that hasn't been our focus to date and, and won't be. I guess on, on my example, that doesn't kind of bother you at all, just because that's kind of like in the nature of the game, in that that is like part of the value add that you actually bring to to some of these brands. And of course, you're taking the approach of having a concentrated portfolio, so you're spending a lot more time with the brand, correct? Yeah, spending a lot more time. And, you know, I think a lot of investors say their value add, but at least in early stage investing and with other VCs that perhaps have 20, 30 
plus portfolio companies, it's really hard to do that. I'm actually amazed at those that would actually be able to provide that level of support to their companies. I think we've actually tried to create a more concentrated portfolio so that our time can be spent with the teams, with the with the founders. We have four incredible team members. We all have extensive beauty experience so we can all get our hands dirty with, with the brands. And honestly, the way we look at it is one of the best ways that we could add value is mistake avoidance. We have a lot of reps. We've seen these playbooks executed. We know the space incredibly well. We know the way that retailers think and behave with brands. If we can just come in and spend time with our founders and actually call out potential problems even before they become problems, that's mistake avoidance because mistakes cost time, mistakes cost money. It's very difficult to come back from some big mistakes. And one of those is, is distribution. I, I can't tell you how often we talk to brands that are like, I'm launching these three retailers and I'm launching them all at once. And for us, that's a major red flag. Um, we'd rather you focus on one and do it incredibly well and be build something with that retailer so they can also build your brand equity and help you get to where you want to go. That's one example. And so I think the concentrated portfolio allows us to do that and I think do it really well. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Clayton Christopher, how he said that one of the target completely mismanaged Target just thought it would sell really well and you know have like high velocities and kind of all that stuff like that and and because they were so focused on you know the D2C business that they almost made the jump a bit too soon. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, are they are they retail ready? Do they have the right packaging to articulate the story on the packaging itself? Again, because in Target you may not have the merchandising on shelf to be able to do that. So your packaging says it all. Do they have the right size impression for the consumer? I mean, there's so many interesting factors there that I think some brands don't take into consideration. And so there's a lot to dig in on just distribution, but you know, we love it. We live and breathe it, spend so much time in, in the industry that, you know, I think we can be really good thought partners for brands, whether they're in embarking on you know big re- retail distribution launches or uh, product and new category innovations or starting to think about international distribution, et cetera. What makes great packaging? What's going to pop in retail per se? Oh gosh, there's so many things. And again, it also depends on the category. And also packaging today is a bit controversial. I mean, when you think about maybe five or 10 years ago, right? luxuries in particular was all about the packaging and the box within a box and how it gets delivered and all the paper and inserts. And today that's actually to the more modern consumer in particular Gen Z, that's a huge no-no. It's all, it's just waste. So to show, you know, you, you need the packaging, of course, to be able to tell your brand story and for it to look very nice and have a good consumer experience. But you want to balance that with, you know, what is the impact that you're leaving on the planet? Um, And so it's hard. I do think what we've seen over the last few years is a bit of a move towards very simple, clean packaging in terms of aesthetic branding and look and feel. And that was really pushed by 
the the move into digital and having these very you know digitally savvy brands come out and every you know the font was was big and sans serif and things started to really look alike that doesn't translate very well in retail <laughs> and so it's interesting i my team and i we, you know we always do tours either at Sephora or at Ulta and we were touring the makeup section at Sephora and i was like gosh every brand of the clean, more modern brands, they all kind of look the same. They all look a bit, they're very clean. Clean, I mean by just the, you know, the aesthetic and the branding, but that could also be quiet. And so how do you grab consumers' attention with, and, and tell the, the product benefit and the, and the brand story when you are very simple and clean in terms of your presentation on packaging and just the overall look and feel where you're very, you know, simple and, and hardly have much text on the packaging itself. It's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it seems too that, that part of the challenge as well is when you're selling online since we're all scrolling through our phones, we're all looking at our phones, it has to be kind of very clear. You want the brand almost to be very, very clear presentation in the phone, you know, and might come across as, you know, not as enthusiastic or maybe as like interesting per se, but then on retail, I'd imagine it's like the complete opposite, right? In terms of what you want. I was having this exact conversation with one of our brands because they launched in, in Sephora and the brand looks stunning, beautiful imagery. Honestly, the presentation in store is beautiful. It almost looks like it would look on Instagram, but you have to remember that you're also selling you, you're supposed to sell in store and you're supposed to educate and you do that through education really. And so there are tactics to what a brand should look like, how they should sound, what they should say in terms of text and what should be in their imagery before and afters as an example. There's all these really important retail tactics that also have to be included in that presentation, not just being something that's aesthetically pleasing like you would find on social or on Instagram, as an example. That's a really, really good point. How have you seen brands successfully approach consumer education within this space? You know, it's um, there's no one way, but I do think the consumer is looking at your site, of course, but they're also looking at your social, they're looking at your emails and now text. And I think one of the best ways to do it is to be consistent in if you're, you know, have a very specific point of differentiation and value proposition, make sure that you reiterate that every single time. And of course, if you're specifically marketing a product, let's say it's a product launch, you obviously want to emphasize that product and the benefits and why a consumer should purchase this, but always reinforcing what the brand is and what it stands for. And I think that having that consistency across channels is really important. I also think, as we know, you know, especially with the rise of Amazon, you know, reviews and UGC and what the consumer is saying and activating the community and having them tell the story for you, not just in the brand's voice, but by the consumer themselves in a way that is, you know, authentic where it's not just you're paying influencers to tell it. And I think that is also hearing it from other consumers, figuring out ways as well to kind of activate word of mouth. But, and again, that has always been the 
holy grail because most consumers still shop because of a friend, a recommendation from a friend. And they look at you and say, gosh, your skin looks amazing. What are you using? Or your hair, what did you do? You know, people want recommendations like that. So putting out amazing product that delivers, one of the best ways to do it. How do you also think about this intersection between influencer and brand, using influencers to help promote your brand, influencers starting brands as kind of like convergence. How do you analyze a brand? Maybe first we can start with if like an influencer were to start their own brand within this space. Yeah, I mean, we see it a lot. We're seeing influencers and celebrities start brands and kind of going back to what I said around what are the key criteria, it starts with brand and it starts with founder. And when you have perfect mix of the right brand and, and, and brand positioning with the right founder, that's kind of where the magic happens. And so whether or not you're a celebrity or you're a big influencer, why do you, why did you start this? Why do you, why is your product so special? Why is it differentiated and why should it exist in the world? Those questions still need to be answered. And the consumer, I think what's happening is there's been so many brands launched with a celebrity and an influencer. And sometimes those stories just don't make sense. I think the consumer is becoming a little weary of it. And so it's almost creating an additional hurdle for a brand to overcome. It's like, you got to prove yourself even more if you have a celeb um, or, you know, big influencer behind you in the consumer's eyes, you got to prove to them why, why you, your product is great because they almost will question it a little bit in today's world. So it just makes it harder. Um, that being said, we will look at, um, opportunities that have a, a celebrity and influencer behind them. And if we can actually identify that there is a real reason for this to exist and the the real founding story, it becomes interesting to us, assuming it also has some of the other criteria, you know, the good product, good margins, the right distribution, et cetera. I think the explosion as of late has just, um, it's been, it's been a lot for the consumer to handle where it's just like, oh gosh, another celebrity is launching a brand. How you're seeing about it is it's a bit tired right now. The consumer maybe is a bit tired right now of fatigue. It's a little bit, a little bit of fatigue. So from your standpoint, there has to be more than just, Hey, look at the amount of distribution or my reach that I can get this brand up and coming. There has to be something deeper there and more meaningful in order for a, an influencer to actually start a company currently. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and you know, if you think about the product assortment and, you know, the people behind the brand too. Do they have great teams that can execute on the strategy and can bring, you know, real innovation and product to to consumers all the time? I mean, I think you you forget that even though there's a famous face, it it allows you to launch, right? But it doesn't mean that you're going to scale. And it doesn't mean that you're actually going to be building a brand and a, and a business behind it. You still need to do all of the things that a regular startup needs to do. Um, and so you just got to have a really good team behind you. So the bar for us is high as an investor. The bar for consumers is becoming high too. So it's it's something to watch. I'm, I'm actually been really surprised by how much, um, how retailers have launched so many of these brands. Because I do think after a while, you know, in their assortment, it, it, 
it, it's competing, right? You're competing for, for the same consumer in some respects. That makes a lot of sense. What were some of your learnings during COVID and this current period? I think, obviously, as students of the industry, of beauty and in particular, we know how beauty tends to perform during challenging times and troublesome times. At least during, we have the history of looking at how beauty is performed during economic downturns and recessions. We did not know what would happen during a global pandemic. That was that was definitely new. But like we kind of were predicting, and when we were raising money, mind you, we were raising, we started fundraising in the summer of 2020. So we were raising right smack at the beginning, um, you know, a few months after shutdown for in, in the U.S. And so we experienced a lot of these questions. Why beauty and why now? And the reality is that it is, it's a definitely a discretionary category, but it's also not something that people really want to give up, whether or not times are tough, um, whether or not they are, you know, going, the, the economy is going through a downturn. People want to feel good and people like small, affordable luxuries like beauty. During COVID, what we learned was that people also realized that they needed to take care of themselves. And taking care of themselves could mean how they treat their skin or, you know, they couldn't go to a salon. So it was like, how do I take care of my own hair? But then it also factored into wellness and what am I eating? What am I, how am I sleeping? And all these other things. And obviously the the stress that COVID put us all through became also front of, you know, top of mind as well as mental health and all these other areas. So actually people turned to beauty, turned to wellness as a way to survive during some of these during the COVID times. And those trends have continued. Sure, we've returned more to um, social settings and we're able to go back to salons and we're going, you know, we're spending more time at work or in an office than we were before, but habits were formed during that time. And what we've seen through the trends and the data is that the beauty industry continues to grow and, you know, certain categories that really got hurt during COVID, like makeup, because it was a social category, are ticking back up again. And hair care and skincare made you know major strides during that time too. So that's interesting as well, because during COVID, I think a lot of people experienced new habits, right? But it's good to know that despite maybe some new habits that, that, that have happened, as things begin to open up, certain you know categories have come back or are performing better. And something that we had to actually adjust for a bit because in some cases some some beauty categories did so well during covid was we actually had to adjust for covid bumps and in, in dtc in particular because yeah. of now the return to store and and people maybe shopping less online small brands who were really you know had really good um, performance during 2020 and into 2021 you had to adjust for that because it actually wasn't the norm. And so it was that was an interesting learning to come out of of COVID as well. But, you know, I think again I'm I'm very bullish on on the industry of course. Um but I do think whether it's a global pandemic or, you know, potential recession, I think people do turn to beauty for not only how it makes them look, 
but also how it makes them feel. And there's a really strong emotional connection to this category. And that's something that you really don't find in others. I really like how you said that, how, you know, some of these brands did extremely well, DTC during the pandemic. There's almost a correction that's happening. And so um, do you ever have to tell brands like, hey, like your growth rate, like let's like pump the brakes on DTC because, you know, that was during COVID? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and the talk about, the, you know, the efficiency that they were getting from their paid marketing as well. You're not seeing that today. And so I get growth projections all the time and you see the two going to 15, going to 30, going to 50, going to 100. And the reality is, I mean, that, you know, when you just factor in the DTC piece, if you're not getting the level of efficiency and you continue to spend at increased levels, then your top line can continue to grow, but then you're not actually making money or have a viable e-commerce model that way. And I think brands have had to recalibrate in that area. We're advising a lot of our portfolio companies on how to acquire customers more profitably and how to do that in ways that's not on Facebook and Instagram. And it goes back to some of the things we've talked about around how do you engage and create community? How do you try to reach consumers both online and offline and tell consistent stories across those? How do you get into the right retail partners that are going to support you? There's a lot of different tactics and a lot of different strategies that need to that need to be um, executed today because a lot of brands got away with spending efficiently um, in on online in during COVID, and that's no longer the case. So we got to get way more um, creative in how we find customers where they are. That makes a lot of sense. What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? So one of my personal favorites, and by the way, I. I'm notorious for not reading. I actually listen. I do a lot of Audible. And I I do a lot of reading, don't get me wrong. I read, you know, research and articles and work stuff. But in terms of, you know, for personal reasons or benefit, I, I do a lot of Audible um, listening when I'm running or walking the dog or running errands. And one of the books that I do think really changed my perspective, it was before I launched True Beauty and I was a little lost in terms of what I wanted to do and the time in my life was a bit challenging and the book is called The Universe Has Your Back by Gabrielle Bernstein. She has a few other ones. Um, Super Attractor is also a really good one, but The Universe Has Your Back is all about understanding how to relinquish control and to actually ask the universe for what you want and to put out the right energy to get what you want because energy flows where your attention goes. And if you're focused on the negative, if you're putting out kind of low vibrations into the world, that's what you're going to get out of it. And so really trying to like focus on your perspective on things and stuff's going to happen to you. And there's, you have no control over what actually happens to you, but what you can control is how you react to it, how it actually makes you feel and and you can control that action afterwards. And it's an amazing book. Um, and so I actually just plugged in um, not too long ago and kind of reheard some of the first few chapters. So I was like, I need a little bit of a refresher. Um, and so I, I highly recommend it. I imagine that's also pretty helpful when you're, you know, 
analyzing teams, analyzing founders, you know, trying to understand when there are hard times, which are always hard times, of how they responded to it, right? In, in those times. Yeah. And especially if you're a super type A person who everything has worked out because you put a lot of hard work into it and hard work will deliver, but sometimes hard work doesn't deliver. And sometimes you can do everything right and stuff happens and things derail. And so how do you react to that? How do you stay calm? Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. Awesome. Awesome. Excited to add that to the book list. My final question to you, Christina, is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Always share the bad news first. And I tell this to all of my founders is the only problem we can't try to help you solve is the one we don't know about. So if we have a good, strong relationship, or if you have one with your investor or a mentor, somebody that's important in your life that is helping you navigate this crazy world of entrepreneurship, share the bad news first. It's always great to share the the wins, but also share the bad news. And we actually, at True Beauty, we call it wins and learns versus wins and losses because there's always a learning that comes from what is a perceived loss. And the quicker that you learn from it, the better off you'll be and the better you can handle the next situation that comes. So I would say sharing the bad news first is a good one. I love that. And we actually haven't had, I don't think, any any previous guests that mentioned that uh, piece of advice. So I love that. That's great. Christina, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Thank you. This is great. I'm glad we finally got to make it happen. And there you have it. It was amazing having Christina on the show. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 